0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
2: Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of news to talk about on Political Rewind, news that broke overnight, Um, and so I want to get right to introducing the panel. I'll start out by saying I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm glad to have you with us for this edition of the show. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, my partner on the Wednesday shows, is with us. Greg, the political news just keeps coming at us a mile a minute.
3: Yeah, there's really no, no off week. There's really no slow time in Georgia politics, especially with the nation's attention on us for very different reasons, right, with our uh, campaign cycle, but also, uh, you know, with a look to the past and what happened in 2020. It's happening in the January 6th committee hearings right now, too.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Rafael Oliveria is uh, with us as well. He's a reporter at Univision. It's great to have you back on the show, Rafael.
4: I'm so happy to be here, Bill, and so happy to um, I hope we have time to talk about all these issues. You know, you've got more on your table now after the latest news overnight.
2: You have, uh, to, we're talking before the show about a, a background, your background, which is interesting. You grew up in Venezuela. You came here to Georgia in 2014. So you've been watching the political scene for quite a while here in the state.
4: I have, and um, I've been able to, I believe that, you know, being from Venezuela gives me a different perspective as well of the political process in the U.S. and have an analysis from the o- outside, which, you know, I can probably notice a few interesting things about uh, U.S.'s culture not having, yeah. not growing on Hebrew.
2: Yeah, yeah. Emma Hurd is with us. She, of course, uh, is a reporter with Axios Atlanta, the newsletter that, um, Comes to you every day in your uh, in your inbox. Just you get it, Emma. Remind everybody how they can subscribe. Because if you remind people how they can scri- subscribe to your newsletter, I'm going to tell them how they can subscribe to mine.
0: Fair <laughs> enough. Can't can't have too many newsletters. Um, right. <laughs> Axios.com/slash/Atlanta, y'all. Pretty
2: simple. <laughs> thank, thank you. By the way, uh, Wednesday is the Political Rewind newsletter date. It'll be coming out later this afternoon. And if you haven't subscribed, you can do so at gpb.org newsletters. Edward Lindsay is back with us as well, former state representative from Atlanta uh, in the Buckhead community. Uh, also, a, the uh, head of the government affairs practice for the state of Georgia at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. And Edward, I'm not sure we've ever mentioned on the show that you also have now been appointed to the state election board, uh, which is going to be a position of enormous importance moving forward in 2022. So we're very glad you're part of the show today.
1: Well, thank you very much for, for having me. And, uh, and I'm very honored to serve on this board. At the end of the day, I, I strongly believe that uh, my job, regardless of who wins, uh, for the people to uh, respect the outcome. If I can also add that I, I do subscribe to all of your newsletters
3: <laughs> and recommend to all of our listeners. And one
1: last thing to Raphael, a little correction. Uh, in Atlanta, if you've been, lived here for more than three weeks, you're a native. So uh, <laughs> welcome.
2: <laughs> all right. Let's get right to it. Uh, Emma, I'm going to start with you because it was your news organization, Axios, that broke some pretty big news for people here in Georgia. Um, we learned late last night that uh, former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, has been appointed to a very high-level position to the White House Office of Public Engagement Director. Um, The Office of Public Engagement was a a position created by the Biden administration, and and it essentially is a bridge between the administration and the American public. But Axios, you also reported um, out of Washington that um, one of her jobs is going to be to try to find middle ground between the progressives and the moderates in uh, in Congress as we move toward this midterm election. And we should say that um, you all published an interview uh, with Bottoms this morning. So tell us about all of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, big news for those of us who are wondering what former mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms would do. And it is a, it's an interesting job and a tough one, especially in this midterm year where approval ratings for the president are really low and Democrats are looking at what might be a really tough midterm cycle. And this job is to feel all of the competing visions for the democratic policy platform from, you know, local all the way up to state and national leaders and figure out with the president, what should be done with all of these different opinions. So a big job. And I think what's notable context here. Is um, first of all, Bottoms is longtime support for Biden. She was one of the first, like, highest-profile political leaders to, to to endorse him back in June 2019, I think, maybe July. But um, she uh, she stuck with him the whole time, even back then when he didn't seem to have a great shot at the White House. As Sarah Johnson, Democratic strategist, told me, he, she was with Biden before it was cool, and uh, didn't didn't waver on that. And in an interview with my colleague. Alexi McCammon, who broke this story, she talks about how the the quote that speaks out to me is, I know what it's like to lead through difficult times and how important it is to have strong leaders around you to navigate. And I just think back, I mean, it is true that Bottoms' four years were tough. She started off with a ransomware attack, COVID, you know, Rayshard Brooks, George Floyd, all of this stuff. And so I have to imagine that experience is along with her
2: Close allegiance to Biden is what uh, got her this job. Greg, uh, Emma makes some awfully good points there. Number one, it is certainly true that Keisha Lance Bottoms is being in in part rewarded because, as Emma said, she was with Biden from the very start. When his approval rating, when his numbers in the polling were dismal, when he was at fifth, sixth place, she never wavered in supporting his candidacy for President for a period of time, it appeared she might be on a list of potential vice presidential uh, candidates. So that's interesting, and we'll talk about that. But also, um, she she came to national prominence during the Black Lives Matter protests in Atlanta, some of which grew violent, and uh, she was the one who stood up at City Hall and and really spoke as a mother, as she said, telling these younger people go home. Uh, we need peaceful protests. And, and she received a lot of national acclaim for the way she handled herself in the middle of a very difficult time. Yes?
3: Yeah, she was nonstop on TV um, in 2020 talking about uh, the, the movement for social justice, also uh, as a, one of the leading voices uh, uh, calling for more restrictions, for more caution around coronavirus. Um, but listen, going back to her endorsement of Joe Biden, This wasn't an endorsement where she just kind of issued a press release and and washed her hands Mm -hmm. of it. She was very, very active. Um, I saw her on the campaign trail in South Carolina. I was with her in Iowa when she went out to um, East Iowa, you know, a little high school uh, where she was making the appeal for for Joe Biden to a caucus group. Um, And her endorsement came at a pivotal moment. I mean, it was was right after a really bad, bruising debate where Kamala Harris was attacking Joe Biden um, over his stance on bussing. Um, And it was not a great debate for for Joe Biden. Um, Keisha Lance Bottoms' endorsement helped change the narrative there. And so I agree with Emma. This is a lot about loyalty. But it's also a lot about, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms, by the end of her tenure here, there's a lot of frustration with her here in the city of Atlanta that she wasn't showing up. She wasn't doing enough to fight crime. Um, that she didn't have her heart into in the camp into in, into uh, being the city of Atlanta's mayor, and even she said that she you know she had lost a lot of that that passion and zeal. Um, but to a national audience, she has a different reputation because they know her from CNN, they know her from from her stances on coronavirus and and the the protests, and this will help kind of reposition Joe Biden's campaign uh, and his campaign messaging. Uh, to a national degree, They have, they have a Democrat who has bridged the gap between moderates and progressives in their past.
1: Edward? Well, there's no question but that she has uh, a mixed legacy here in, in Atlanta. And there's a lot of folks who have criticized her administration. Um, and a lot of folks were frustrated, particularly in the last couple of years in office. They felt that she was detached from some of the day-to-day duties, and, and I've been one of those critics, but but let me sort of take more of the high road today since today is the day that this is announced. It is good uh, for a, a city uh, or a state to have someone at a high level in an administration uh, from our area. Uh, it was very good, for instance, for the farmers in Georgia uh, when they had Sonny Perdue uh, as the secretary of agriculture. So uh, it can be very beneficial to our city. Uh, to have uh, Mayor Bottoms where she is in the administration. And we'll see whether or not she learned uh, from her experience in the city of Atlanta and grew from those experiences. Uh, and uh, for today, I wish her well. <laughs> Down the road, uh, I may have some criticisms for, but today I wish her well and certainly hope that it's something that's good for our city.
2: Raphael?
4: Yeah, I think it also shows that her strategy. Worked. I think uh, she would be a different. She would be perceived differently had she run and faced all the attacks and criticism she she would have faced, or even you know had she lost uh, that primary. I guess the fact that she didn't and she shielded herself from all the criticism that might have come at her had she run. I think it helped her in her, her next steps, and, and, and it shows. And like, like Greg says, it's very different the way she's perceived nationwide compared to how she's perceived in Atlanta. Um,
2: it's quite likely, I think, based on what I'm reading in both the AJC and on Axios, that uh, she's going to be a very public-facing uh, member of the administration, uh, Greg. We can expect that we're going to see her out there uh, as as one of the spokespeople, maybe one of the most prominent spokespeople. And one of the things, of course, that's important for the administration about that is it shows a recommitment or a continuing commitment or an emphasis on their uh, desire to make sure that they know the African-American community has their attention. Yes, Greg? Yes,
3: yes, exactly. One of the biggest concerns for Democrats heading into the midterms is that um, not that black voters will, will vote for the GOP, but they're losing their um, their passion, their energy for Joe Biden's policies because he wasn't able to pass the voting rights expansion because he wasn't able to, to pass Build Back Better because a lot of the progressive policies that Joe Biden promised to pass are just not happening right now. And um, she'll look to help reposition his message going into 2024.
2: Hey, Emma, let me read to you. Chase McGee just uh, told me in my ear that he's – Uh, 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 sent me a statement that's now been released by the White House. Your colleagues beat them to the punch in making this announcement. But here's what President Biden is quoted as saying. Mayor Bottoms understands that democracy is about making government work for working families, for the people who are the backbone of this country, She led the city of Atlanta with strength through the pandemic, through a summer of protests and pain, and through the mass shooting that left Atlanta's Asian American community in fear. Keisha is bright, honorable, tough, and has the integrity required to represent our administration to the American public. Um, So everything that we've talked about is in that statement from President Biden.
0: Absolutely. And I think what Greg brought up about, um, you know, race here is also notable, too, given the dynamics in the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, also Biden in the past has faced some criticism for having a largely white upper tier staff full of aides who have been with him for a long time, you know, reflective again of loyalty, which Bottoms has shown, too. And now she's joining that crew. Um, And in terms of representing the administration, I mean, she also was already a CNN commentator. So she's been she has been on TV as mayor, as Greg said, but also afterwards, and as proven herself to be a somebody that you know TV networks want on their on their airwaves as well.
2: Let's move on and uh, talk about another story that broke uh, um, overnight. Uh, Greg in the in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the joke this morning reports that uh, Stacey Abrams, despite the fact that Joe Biden's uh, approval ratings are just dismally low, uh, has made it clear she's going to stick with him, as she as said, in in, in words similar to that. Biden was in Philadelphia yesterday. He talked to the AFL-CIO members there. And uh, among the many Democratic uh, candidates in various places that he gave shout outs to, he gave one to Stacey Abrams. I guess she was up there at this event, based on what I thought I heard him uh, say about her, Greg.
3: Yes, this is an AFL-CIO event where he was trying to strengthen his ties to labor, uh, the backbone, an important you know, cornerstone of the Democratic support, especially in states like, uh, like Pennsylvania. Um, but also a big part of Stacey Abrams' campaign, and one of her first endorsers in this 2022 race. And look, I mean, for Stacey Abrams, she tried to be Joe Biden's running mate, so it's really hard for for anyone to say that she's trying to distance herself from from the the president. Um, You know, she didn't appear at one of his uh, one of his campaign stops in January here when he was pushing uh, the federal voting rights expansion, but that was because of a scheduling conflict. we know that whether or not, even, even if she tries to inch away from Joe Biden, it won't matter because Republicans will tie her to Joe Biden every, at every stand. So she's taking the stance of, hey, I'll take all the help I can get, including from um, a president and a vice president who have devoted billions of dollars to coronavirus relief and other programs in Georgia. But, of course, you know, Republicans in our marquee races and really down ticket are going to be tying every Democratic candidate to Joe Biden as much as they can because of his flagging approval ratings, because of economic volatility, uncertainty, inflation, high gas prices, all these issues Republicans feel like will be the deciding factor in this November election.
1: Well, this may be a a move on on her part, and I think, and I agree with Greg, that it's a move that she didn't have any choice about. But it's also a very smart move. I've always thought that one one of the big mistakes that both Jason Carter and Michelle Dunn did in 2014 when President Obama came to Atlanta for a very high-profile visit. uh, They seem to have had a scheduling conflict on the other side of the state. Um, And, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, elections are oftentimes about turnout. And if your base feels like you're disrespecting uh, your party's national leader, uh, your base uh, sometimes will turn on you in terms of a lower turnout. So, uh, it is, like I said, like Greg said, a, a, an issue, a, a position of necessity on her part, but it's also a smart position. You don't, you don't diss your, your national leader uh, if you want to get your base to come out uh, for you in November. So, uh, I, I do think that that she made the smart decision.
2: Raphael uh, uh, Kemp's uh, spokesman Cody Hall, who is never at a loss for coming up with a good jibe, uh, had this to say in reference to the potential that Biden might come to Georgia to campaign for. "Quote," Cody Hall said, "We'll pitch in for gas." <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, uh, it's it, um, the the tragedy that they you know they they believe that uh, economy will win of overall. That's also a strategy that I've seen the, their pitching when it comes to Latino voters is, you know, definitely we're not going to talk about necessarily about, you know, new pro- programs related to Im- immigration. We're not going to talk about, you know, ISIS jails in Georgia. We're going to talk about how the, the Democrats running the country are hurting your, your wallet, your job opportunities, how uh, the Democrats represent for la- la- Latino conservatives a pro-abortion, pro-LGBTQ rights that you don't want anything to do with that, and it seems like that's where they're going to go going forward. And I've I've, I've seen them like re- reaching out to the la- Latino conservatives in our, in our state in churches and in, in also sort of settings, try to try to get them on on board. So. It seems like that's what they're probably going to do with uh, Stacey Abrams as well, and that's what they'll do also to move their base.
2: Hey, before we get away from the jolt today, Greg, let me just pick up on an item that I hadn't seen until uh, this morning, and maybe you can just comment on it briefly and we can move on. But Fair Fight was back in court yesterday. They've had this longstanding lawsuit uh, uh, challenging the legality of the 2018 uh, gubernatorial election here and uh uh Lauren Growargo uh head of who was head of uh, fair fight what what and was one of uh Stacey's most important advisors campaign uh manager uh she apparently really got a grilling and uh one of the things that your people I think it must have been Mark Nisi who would have covered this quotes judge Steve Jones US District Court judge Steve Jones who uh, is handling this case? As saying, so what you're saying is, when you lost, referring to 2018, it wasn't a free election, and when you won, referring to 2020, it was a free election. That's a, a pretty biting comment in the middle of a trial that Fair Fight hopes will show that there was uh, that, that the way in which. The Secretary of State at the time at Brian Kemp in his office handled things like absentee ballots, registration, and the like.
3: Yeah, and Gro Wargo didn't answer that question directly, by the way. She said that instead that the 2018 election was the first time in years Georgia Democrats had come so close to winning and that these reports of voting problems were pervasive. But, you know, that, that the Judge Jones's comments were only the latest indication that this ruling could go against Um, or could not be the ruling that Fair Fight wants. Even if Fair Fight ends up winning, um, it might be a narrow victory, a hollow victory. Um, uh, By all accounts, even by Democratic accounts, Josh Belenfonte, the lawyer for the Georgia Secretary of State's office, is doing a a solid job in representing the state against uh, against this legal challenge. And we could have a ruling in the next few weeks that could be a blow against Stacey Abrams and her allies. Emma?
0: And... I mean, it just also evokes to me that the, as we all know well, the politicization of these voting issues on the other side, too. I mean, the attacks on Republicans from Democrats who have said that, you know, the presidential election was, quote, rigged, but been fine with their own Republican congressional victories down ticket and state Senate, state House, you name it.
2: Yeah, Edward, it does strike me. I understand that Fair Fight, not, I certainly would not want to suggest that they don't believe their case is a legitimate one. They, they obviously do. But unfortunately, as they pressed it, it does put them in a position of allowing Republicans to come back at them and say, you know, you, you accuse us of uh, talking about rigged elections. You've done the same thing yourself.
1: Well, the the danger, and it's a danger for, for any party to keep uh, focusing on the past rather than the future. Voters want to know, what are you going to do for me now and what are you going to do for me in the coming days and, and for my family? And for Democrats to keep harping back on 2018, it, it doesn't help them. For Republicans to harp back on 2020, it doesn't help them. Uh, it, it, I think it turns off a lot of voters when you don't step in front of a camera and 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 with dignity concede an election and wish the winner well. Uh, I think that is something that's very important, and I'm, I have on now my my state election board hat. I think that's very important. Uh, I will I will go out on a limb and say that the election in two thousand eighteen, while there may have been some irregularities, uh, uh, Governor uh, Kemp solidly won, and in twenty twenty in Georgia. Uh, while well, there may have been some some irregularities uh President biden won uh, in georgia uh, and and we need to have our political leaders on both sides of the political aisle uh respect the outcome and it's up to those of us who are now part of the election process to do everything that we can to uh, to for voters to have uh, assurances that the outcome of an election is fair and that's going to be one of the duties that I have uh, and the other members, the bipartisan members of of, of the board have. Uh, I have found it interesting that everyone on both sides wants to keep taking shots. Uh, you know, I got appointed to this position on a Friday, January 9th, and uh, I was sued for the first time on Monday, January 12th. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, and so, <laughs> And and I might add, I'm being defended by uh, Josh Bell and Fonte and his firm, okay. uh, who are special assistant attorney general. So, but uh, you know that's going to be something. I, and I certainly hope that that the folks on both sides of the political aisle will help those of us who are part of the election process now uh, to uh, to give folks reassurance that regardless of the outcome, and it will be a close election this year, uh, that uh, we can um, both sides will show faith in the outcome. Uh, regardless. Of All right, which let's way it do. Goes.
2: I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Let's get no. to our first break of the show. There are some really uh, interesting stories about Herschel Walker I want to turn to next. We'll do that in just a moment. Emma Hurt, Rafael Oliveria, Edward Lindsay, Greg Bluestein joined me for Political Rewind today. A couple big stories uh, about. Herschel Walker in uh, the news, your colleague, Greg, at the AJC, Shannon McCaffrey, broke one of them. Uh, She went through transcripts of uh, some of Herschel Walker's speeches, some of his uh, remarks, motivational uh, speeches that he gave to uh, various groups and the like, and she found that on any number of occasions, he referred to himself as having uh, experience as a law enforcement officer, um, including at one point, having told one group, uh, you know, I trained at Quantico at the FBI training center. I'll bet you didn't know. Essentially, I was a federal agent. He made many comments very similar to that in front of other organizations. At one point, talking about the fact that's the reason I, have a, I carry a gun uh, because I'm a law enforcement officer. None of this turns out to be true at all, Greg.
3: Yeah, we found at least three occasions where he made the false claim that he was uh, a member of law enforcement. Um, at the very best, we could, you know, his campaign could point to the fact that he went through some training. Um, that he was basically an honorary member of some law enforcement departments, which, which one expert said, but it's kind of meaningless. It's like being a junior ranger. You know, it's just a badge. It's just a, uh, you know, it's just a, a, a piece of paper, a certificate, essentially. Um, he, he was never a member of the FBI like he once claimed, um, because you have to have a bachelor's degree. And that goes back to another false claim of Persian Walker. He didn't graduate from college. And he very famously didn't graduate from college because he went into uh, the, uh, professional football early. And at the time, in the 1980s, that was a very big deal. Um, this is part and parcel, though, with the trend, right? This story alone is the is a, is a story, but of course, but it's part of a trend that we keep on talking about on the show and on others, which is a pattern of falsehoods, lies. Um, uh, exaggerations of the truth when it comes to o- all sorts of facets of Herschel Walker's life, not just law enforcement, but his business background, his academic experience, um, his his stance on, on, on political issues. All these, uh, are, are, are we're seeing them increasingly used by Democrats um, to paint Herschel Walker as someone who's untrustworthy and not fit for office.
2: Um, Raphael, uh, you know, the question becomes, we're going to talk about another uh, story that uh, broke overnight about Herschel Walker that that's also uh, may cause him trouble. We'll get to that in a minute. But no matter what the stories are and no matter how negative they become, the question is what impact they have on a guy who is so beloved by so many Georgians, and I suspect not just in the Republican ranks, but there are Democrat UGA fan, Democratic UGA fans who loved him, uh, too, and who knows whether they might cast a ballot in his direction.
4: It's interesting to see uh, Walker would have some sort of a, a Trumpian effect in a sense that, you know, you're bulletproof, no matter how many stories shows that you're exaggerating something or lying about something, it wouldn't affect. It's, uh, I've seen it portraying himself as a uh, model of a conservative and appealing to, to, to Christians uh, when it comes to the, the, the Latino vote that... On, on a, April, she was at this church in Swanee, tweeting in Spanish. Uh, probably not him, but talking about how amazing it is to be with a Latino family at the Jesús at Casa Vida Church, it's a church in, in Swane and, and that was it, And that's the the, time, the type of audience he's trying to appeal, really conservative audiences. And we'll see if that model of conservative man uh stands with all the news that are coming out uh in the last few hours.
2: Well, um Emma, speaking of that, uh, the Daily Beast has perhaps the even more potentially powerful report. Um it turns out that Herschel Walker has a 10-year-old son who he has never talked about publicly. He he we know about a a, a son who he speaks up with great pride and uh, talks about a close relationship with. But Daily Beast says that um, they learned this because there's been a year-long court proceeding by the child's mother trying to prove Walker's paternity after her three-year relationship with him. Uh, apparently, he is now paying child support and does send presents to the, to the young person every now and then, but, but he doesn't talk about him publicly And according to at least the Daily Beast report, has virtually nothing uh, to do with him. Um, And and the reason that becomes, put it in context, Walker has on many occasions, the Daily Beast uh, reports, talked about how important it is in black families for fathers to remain part of the family, to look after their sons, to be role models for their sons. He's made that in the past an important part of how he talks about Um, African-American communities. Emma?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, it's just one of many of this ongoing
2: uh, stream of
0: stories that we've seen from various news outlets about Herschel Walker. And, you know, the Walker campaign pushback saying he's not hiding this child just because he doesn't talk about him on the campaign trail. He is, quote, proud of his children. They said it's offensive to suggests that he's hiding the child, that he's paying, that he's supporting the child and continues to do so, and then calls a double standard, trying to pivot the conversation towards Raphael Warnock's own child custody dispute. His wife is seeking increased child support payments and, um, I believe, trying to move the children uh, to go to grad school. But it is, um, again, this man who has been in the celebrity spotlight for decades, but never had this level of scrutiny before. Um, there are just, it seems to be many of these stories of past statements, and now this um, this revelation as well. The question is, as you alluded to, though, does it break through to people who may idolize Herschel Walker regardless and maybe don't hear about these stories like we pay attention to them? Um, Democrats are obviously going to try their best to make sure that they do
2: edward
1: well uh you know let's sort of talk about you know how to handle a crisis and 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 the best way to handle a crisis for any public figure particularly a candidate is to step in front of the cameras and show candor and empathy and and that's going to be his challenge in the past and he's he stepped up in on other issues and and succeeded particularly on the on the mental health issues uh and has actually garnered praise for I've uh, been very candid about some of his past uh, uh, mental issues. You know, uh, candidates uh, are, are famous for if they are do show candid for surviving. Uh, you know, I'll go all the way back to my history lessons. With, uh, Grover Cleveland, uh, when he was running for president, it was discovered back in the 19th century that he had fathered a child out of wedlock, and his, his opponents were, you know, had the chant, you know, Ma, 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 where is my pa? and the uh and the cleveland folks came back going gone to the white house ha 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 and um and you know but cleveland way back then stepped in front of uh reporters and was very candid about it and and had similar to walker uh supported the child uh and taking care of the child uh but you know that's going to be sort of the 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 issue i will i'll pivot back to the fact that i think most uh uh, voters in georgia the overwhelming number of voters in georgia are going to focus on, uh, on uh, the issues involved and in, in their perception of Democrats' ability to handle it versus Republicans. I'm, re- I'm reminded by a- another campaign a couple of decades ago in which uh, there were some similar issues. They came out about a uh, candidate's uh, personal life who nevertheless got elected to the U.S. Senate, and one of the voters commented, well, I'm electing a senator, not a saint. Um and and I think that probably most voters are going to be in that category. Uh but uh but Walker does have a a, a deep well of uh positive support in Georgia by people across the political aisle. The question is does he step in front of the candidates and show Kansas? And if he does, he'll survive this.
3: Yeah, You know, and I, I checked around. I don't have any Grover, Cleveland Alexander uh, stories, but I did check around with <laughs> Republican activists this morning because, you know, the story to, to us is, is you know, it, it's the hypocr- hypocrisy more than the fact that he had a, a second son. It's that he, uh, you know, he's been talking about the importance, especially the importance of, of black men to step up and be there for their children. And in this case, it, it appears like he hasn't. Um, but, you know, the other story is that this is just a number of, of as I mentioned earlier, of lies, exaggerations, hypocritical moments um, that, that Democrats and his other critics were used to paint him as, as not fit for office. Um, I checked around with some Republicans who have been skeptical of, of him in the past this morning. One basically said he's the Mickey Mouse of, of, of politics in a good way. You know, He has such a hot brand name that that these allegations don't seem to stick, even though they're proven, even though, you know, his own words can be used against them. Another, um, this is a a county activist up in Raven County, where um, they actually passed a no-confidence resolution against Herschel Walker when he refused to participate in debates. He said, with all the concerns I have, I'm still confident that Herschel Walker won't be as bad or do nearly as much harm as six years of Raphael Warnock. To me, it's the economy and the fragility of where we are at right now. And this, this bill speaks to Herschel Walker's strategy, which is, you know, we wrote this in the Jolt a few, a few days ago. He wants to be the issues candidate now. He didn't talk about the issues at all in the run-up to the primary, but now he wants to focus on the economy on pocketbook issues because uh, Republicans writ large feel like if they can focus on inflation and Joe Biden, that it's a winning formula, a winning strategy in November.
2: Greg, let's look at uh, just for a minute on the other side of that race at Raphael Warnock. His memoir was just published. Um, not unusual for a candidate for office to put out a book uh, talking about uh, her or his life and the policies that she or he have, has espoused over the years. Uh, but what's interesting about the Warnock book, I haven't read it myself yet, but I've seen your reporting on it, Greg, um, is that he one of the centerpieces of his life story is uh, his relationship with his brother, who I believe I'm correct, was a former Savannah cop who was caught in a, among a ring of, of police in, in Savannah who were aiding and abetting a, a drug uh, uh, runners down there and ended up serving time in prison. And Warnock tells the story about, among other things, going to the prison to bring his uh, brother home. Talk about what you think that story, why will Warnock uh, talk about that in this election campaign? and Why does he highlight it in his book? Yeah,
3: I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. because he chose to open the book with his brother. You know, he could have mm-hmm. opened it at some different moments. Um, campaign revelations, getting the you know Ebenezer pulpit, all these things, but it was his brother. His brother's sort of a through line throughout mm-hmm. his book and really throughout his life. His brother was his protector growing up, um, he, he, his brother was his bunk mate in, in his crowded home because he had eleven brothers and sisters growing up in, in savannah um, and his brother was his idol in in a sense you know he, he looked up to his brother and he could not believe that his brother got, got ensnared by this federal probe um, uh, and, and, and ultimately convicted of of helping um of, of helping uh you know drug runners in, in this fbi sting operation in reality you know he wasn 't helping anyone uh it, it, carry out a a real plot because it was FBI uh, uh, informants, essentially. Um, But uh, while he's disappointed in his brother, he writes, he's also, of course, disappointed in the justice system, which he feels like has uh, unfairly targeted um, and and continued a systemic um, uh, discrimination against African-Americans. This is going to come up in the campaign trail in different ways, right? Republicans are going to say and have already uh, tried to assert that he's um, that, that he sort of whitewashed his brother's crimes um, And for Raphael Warnock, it's part and parcel of his uh, it's his push to overhaul criminal justice laws and uh, and, and disproportionate um, uh, it, treatment of, of African Americans under the, the eyes of the law.
0: And I think also I mean again, as you said, Not uncommon for a politician to release a memoir in an election year, but it's reflective to this larger strategy that Democrats around the country, but including Raphael Warnock in a really tight race, have to focus on themselves to try to to separate themselves from the national headwinds Mm -hmm. from the Biden administration. Um, And, you know, Warnock and Ossoff, it's hard to compare because of the runoffs, but they did outperform Biden in 2020. And so the hope for the campaign is that he can outperform uh, Biden's approval ratings by a lot if they're the same as they are now. And that can happen, they would argue, by people getting to know Raphael Warnock and continuing to have a relationship with this person who is separate and apart from whatever's happening in D.C., even if he works in D.C.
2: <laughs> um, Raphael, before we get to our final break, one thing that is always worth pointing out when we talk about the Senate race is that Here in Georgia, one of the states of the Deep South, the contest for the U.S. Senate seat is going to be between two black men. I think about that and what it means about where we are. I know we are still struggling with discrimination and racism, but two black men are competing for a Georgia U.S. Senate seat. That is a remarkable development in our history. Considering the the history of, of this state bill, yes
4: it is. I think, you know, years ago, you wouldn't have thought about, about that. And I believe it, it, it tells you the story of, you know, even though there's still much to, to do, there's still, uh, there's some pro- progress when it comes to uh, to politics and how uh, communities of color have had the chance to get uh, some representation. And, uh, and, and I believe that tells the story of, you know, hopefully more people uh, uh, of color uh, across Georgia might be able to, to see themselves as, as you know, at as, as, as some point they might be able to get to the position of power they aspire to.
2: OK, uh, let's get to the final break of the show. We'll come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Edward Lindsay. uh, Each Wednesday, after a primary election somewhere in the country, we are gauging how strong President, uh, former President Trump is, uh, based on whether the candidate, the candidates that he's endorsed, have won or lost. I want to just talk about this for just a minute, because in South Carolina, um, he uh, he supported a a candidate uh, who ran against a Republican who ran against uh, Representative Tom Rice, one of the ten Republicans who voted to impeach. Uh, to, to uh, uh, impeach the president uh, at the time. and Bryce uh, and lost that election. He is now it now appears that at least five of the ten Republicans who voted for impeachment are not going to be in office uh, at this beginning of 2023 and possibly more to come. On the other hand, Nancy Mace, who uh, was very critical of Trump after the insurrection won re-election against the Trump candidate? There, I, I don't know how much to make of that. Except, I do think for a candidate who uh, actually voted to impeach, uh, Trump is going to have still hold some power on the other side of that equation.
1: He's going to continue to have some power, um, you know, particularly in races in which. The focus is looking back and he's not and the candidate isn't able to to pivot. Uh, the difference for uh, Representative Mace is that she worked very hard to pivot back to focusing on the future, and that's why she survived. Same thing happened with the Governor uh, Kemp here in Georgia where he focused on local issues and focused on the future and and um, and Senator Perdue simply didn't have a response as to how he would govern differently. So uh, you know, uh, it it does boil down to you know what what is going to be the central issue. If the central issue among certain base voters is the past, uh, you know uh, there are a large number of Republican voters who still agree with uh, Trump that that he uh, that he that the election was rigged, uh, and so that candidate will be in trouble. But if a candidate can pivot to sort of saying, "Hey, the past is the past, but I'm going to sort of talk about the future." Uh, those candidates prevail, and so we'll just have to see. Uh, I do think that in the long run, you're starting to see a a weakening of the uh, of the power of President Trump, but anyone who dispels him entirely within the Republican base does so at their peril at this point at least.
2: Rafael, I want to talk very briefly about another, spe- another election that was held yesterday. And I want to talk about it in the context of where Hispanic voters are heading in the 2022 uh, cycle. There was a special election uh, for a, uh, a House seat in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas yesterday. And um, a Republican candidate, Mayra Flores, uh, won that seat um, that was vacated by a Democrat— she, she vastly outraised her Democratic opponent in that race and went on to win it. She'll be the first Republican from the district uh, and the first Latina Republican from Texas in Congress. And, of course, Raphael, the reason we're watching that race is we wonder what's happening to uh, the Hispanic-Latino the vote as we move toward 2022. Is it becoming more Republican in parts of the country? Not in Georgia so far. I believe, Bill, that uh, there's sometimes what we've seen among
4: some Democrats group is a misconception of where the La- Latino votes are. For I will give you an example. We've seen more and more uh, people in the pro- progressive uh, wing of the party talking about Latinx. That's something you've heard many, many times. But Latinos in general are not fond of that word there are so many, uh, so there are so many differences. Where you see a Repo- if you see a, La- a La- 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 Latino or La- Latina Republican talking about those conservative Latinos in their own language, that might prove to be su- successful. And then a Democrat wouldn't have the chance to talk about oh, the the, the Republican Party, they are, the candidate is a is a, is a racist. They want to dis- discriminate you because then you would see a La- a La- Latino. The and that we have seen that in Florida as as well. And that tells you also the story of how the Democrats still uh, haven't had a grasp of how to connect with Latinos that are not worried about immigration, that are worried about the economy, and are not worried about the X at the end of it, but they want to talk about the real issues. So that that's a struggle that Democrats have faced here as well. And that's some, some, what, some, one of the stories that we're taking a look at, because there's a disconnect at some point. Greg? Yeah, let's bring these, these election results forward
3: to our, our next election in Georgia, our runoff in
2: mm-hmm. on Tuesday.
3: Um, and I've spent a lot of time in, in the 10th district in particular, and I, I live in the 6th district, um, where two, two, you know, solidly Republican districts, uh, Trump's endorsed Jake Evans in the 6th and Vernon Jones in the 10th. And whenever I go out to talk to voters, um, and really when I see the, some of the campaigns themselves, Trump is not front and center at all. I mean, these, are, these elections will be de- defined by battles against apathy uh, of voter turnout operations and really some really bracing attacks that have very little to do with, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I talked to the Athens County, Athens Park County GOP chair who says, hey, tr- Trump is neutral in my eye. He, he has no really role on, in these races. Uh, we're talking about such low turnout um, overall that it's a challenge for the candidates just to get over voter confusion. People said, yeah, I voted for you a couple of weeks ago. I have to vote again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's going on with that? And there's no Republican statewide runoff on the ballot. So there's no real driver um, like, like we, we might have thought there could be um, to help get attention to these down ticket races. And, and remember, they will be decided. I mean, it'll be very difficult for a Democrat um, to win in November. So odds are these races will be decided on
2: Tuesday. The congressional races, specific The
0: congressional races. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Emma?
0: And, you know, I will just say also when we're looking ahead to the runoff on Tuesday, sort of a similar, slightly similar vein of um, I'm watching the Democratic statewide uh, runoff and whether Stacey Abrams' endorsed candidates make it. Because, again, to Greg's point about apathy, low turnout, what kind of electorate are you getting? Do they know that Stacey Abrams endorsed? Does it matter to them? Um, and what happens, you know, if her non-endorsed candidates win uh, with her at the top of the ticket? Um, it's these, these, these runoffs are tricky business.
3: You know,
1: you know what, what we have been developing in, in runoffs has, has made a lot of us who have in the past favored the runoff system because, you know, the idea of, well, let's limit it down to two and then have folks, You'll come back and make a clear choice as opposed to, you know, someone getting the, the primary nomination with 30 percent of the vote. That depends on a large number of people coming back out to vote. Uh, but when you start having turnouts, and, and I hate to say this, but I'm expecting a turnout of somewhere around 10 percent and perhaps even lower uh, in, in the runoff, that makes, us, that makes you start to rethink how we're going to do this. Uh, You know, and one thing that that we're starting to look at around the country and and we should seriously start thinking (laughs) about here in Georgia is this rank voting sort of situation in which you have the same voters who show up at the primary uh, also decide, uh, Okay, if your first choice doesn't get it, uh, you know, what's your second choice uh, down the road? And go ahead and decide it there when there's a higher turnout, because, you know, 10 percent of the population is just not a good way for democracy to to operate in terms of uh, deciding. Uh, who should be our leaders down the road? That's just me with my state election board
2: hat on for a moment. Yeah. Well, Edward, let me ask you a follow up question to that. We're, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you this. Have you seen any movement uh, in the uh, legislature to suggest that we ought to start really looking at a bill that would make rank choice voting a reality in the state?
1: I think that I'm hearing that more and more. I mean, as you start to see some of the results coming back, uh, that have shown that it generally seems to work uh, down the road. Um, there's some concerns that are raised. I think New York, for whatever reason, took several weeks to, you know, to decide who won with it, and that's simply something that's not acceptable. Uh, but but I, I am hearing more and more folks express concerns as they've seen ranked voting. Operating in other places, and that slowly, that that the interest is is increasing across the board. So, anyway, right. it's something that Edward, I think we just need to start considering.
2: Edward Lindsay uh, gets the uh, last word on today's political rewind. Um, I really appreciate uh, Rafael Oliveria, We're not going to have a chance to talk about it, but we're just uh, coming to the 10th anniversary of the start of DACA and the future of the program. It remains completely up in the air, I think it's safe to say. Yes, one, one comment from you on that.
4: Yeah, taking a look at that bill, because according to estimates, uh, we have 20,000 Georgia DACA recipients and 37 U.N. citizens living with them. So they vote.
2: All right. Rafael Oliveria thank you for being with us. Edward Lindsay, always a pleasure to have you as well. Emma Hurt, your colleagues at Axios broke a very big story, and I'm really glad you were here the next morning to talk about it with us, so thanks for being here. And Greg Bluestein. always a pleasure to be able to talk with you about the work you're doing at the AJC. That's it for Political Rewind for today. Remember, the new edition of the Political Rewind newsletter is coming out later this afternoon. You can subscribe at gpb.org newsletters. We'd love to have you join us. That's it. We're back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye everybody.